served with hoorah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money. This episode has two distinct parts. The first is an interview with Jamie Schmidt, the founder of Schmidt's Naturals, which began as a deodorant company run out of her kitchen and then sold to Unilever in 2017 for an undisclosed sum, which usually means hella money. (laughs) Schmidt was a small business owner hawking her natural deodorant in a jar at local farmer's markets for years before she could afford to quit her job slash jobs and buy a warehouse to really build Schmidt's into a profitable company that was her full-time job. Obviously, in America, entrepreneur stories are to be taken with a grain of salt. Jeff Bezos claims to have started Amazon in a garage while never really mentioning that he received $300,000 from his parents. Not everyone can work for themselves, and not everyone can start a company, nor should everyone want to or feel pressured to. But you should know the truth behind most people who start companies. Now, more of the listeners of this show are probably technically freelance or small business owners. While I freelanced, I learned that much of it is unpaid labor. Chasing down clients, pitching to publications, building your brand, marketing yourself, keeping your social media accounts up to date. If you're working in an office, you have a guaranteed salary at the end of the week or so, but with freelancing, I could do all of this work and uh, still not make a cent. (laughs) It's a long-term project, and the results are mixed. The second half of this show is one I'm incredibly happy to share because it's a subject I think is one of the most important right now. Unionizing and advocating for yourself at work. If our mailbag episode about corporate culture has taught us anything, it's that you need to advocate for yourself, especially if you want to work from home. I spoke to the 2019-2020 co-chair of the Freelance Solidarity Project, Haley Melodic, which Haley describes on her website as a distinct division for digital media workers within the National Writers Union. So yes, there is a National Writers Union and there's all kinds of little divisions that get more specific. The Freelance Solidarity Project is the place to go if you need help collectively bargaining or you don't want to feel like a lone wolf when trying to get better industry standards. Freelancing can feel very lonely. Like with most unions, one person is replaceable, but a whole workforce is not. And again, freelancing really kind of makes you feel like you're out there on your own. For years, I freelanced for magazines and newspapers. And now what I do is still technically freelancing. I have my company, Noted by Sexual Inc., And it's my responsibility to make sure the company is paid in a timely manner. That means the same stuff I did while quote-unquote freelance. Emailing accounts payable departments over and over again, without shame, until they cut me a check. Keeping track of how much I made each month. Making sure to remember I take out enough for taxes whenever I pay myself. Freelancing and building your own business is as exhausting as it can be rewarding. And it's almost like it's its own second job on top of the job you're doing for your clients. And again, it's really lonely. So first, I'm happy to speak to Schmidt's founder, Jamie Schmidt, who gives great tips and insights into turning yourself into a business, gaining and keeping customers and clients, and mistakes that she made. 
Being able to maintain a business as it grows is an incredible privilege, and the narratives of it all being about hard work is toxic AF. No matter how many business people give interviews about doing it all themselves and being a harder worker than anyone else, which thankfully Jamie does not do, you cannot do this alone. And a lot needs to change in order for people to be treated fairly while working for themselves. Hey everyone, I'm Jamie Schmidt. I'm the founder of The Brand Schmidt's Naturals. It's a business that I started in my kitchen back in 2010. When you were starting your company, what do you do to brand yourself? So I started this in Portland, right? Portland, Oregon is like the most creative city in the U.S. And so I'm surrounded by, you know, artists and makers and just like people with really cool ideas. And so when I started this, it was really, you know, kind of just my way of fitting into the city, trying to be one of the cool kids. (laughs) And so I, I started selling at the farmer's markets around town and, you know, never really had a plan at this point to turn it into a big business. So when you think about branding and marketing, it was really sort of, you know, pretty low pressure in in the early days because I was just out there doing something that was fun for me. But I realized in talking to customers, you know, at those markets that there was a real interest in what I was doing and a real need for a new deodorant um, on the market. And so really what I did was just start listening to my customers and what they were saying about my product and then just spinning that into my marketing. And so it was just a really great way to help me you know, as a new business owner who had no idea what, what she was doing, figure out how to market the product. I mean, what are people telling me? What are they saying about this product that I can just, you know, recycle back into my marketing messaging? So you started making it in your kitchen. Yes. You make like five sticks. And then what do you do? You're like, how do you look for where to sell that? What do you do? Yeah, it was it was fun because I'm like, okay, now I have this product. This is awesome. I'm using it for myself and sharing it with friends and family, but I want more people to try it. And so I just started looking around at, at different farmer's markets. I knew that Portland was just you know known for, for having um, just markets and festivals every weekend. And so it wasn't hard. I mean, it was a little competitive and you know, getting into some of the markets, but it was people were interested, right? They liked the locally made products and like handmade products, especially with something natural, like Schmidt's deodorant. And so I just started signing up for everything I could. And some of the markets were just ridiculous, right? They were so slow. Portland's a rainy city. So, you know, <laughs> half the yeah. time you're getting ra- rained out. But I figured, you know, just being there was worth it. And if I converted one customer, then that just, that just made it all worth the money and the time to be there. How long did it take before everything was like profitable? Well, it's interesting because so my, my books were really messy in the first couple of years, right? Like I was not tracking my revenue and expenses like I should have been. But ultimately, looking back, you know, the best sense I could make in my books was that I was pretty much profitable from day one, which is crazy because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't know what like, <laughs> what like, a, you know, cogs or a cost of goods sold, what that meant, how to calculate it and sort of like what my numbers needed to be. But, you know, I sort of took a stab in the dark at what I thought my pricing should be. And then from there, of course, things got, you know, more tightened up. But what, what did you just say? COG? Yeah, COG. So COGS is, is one of the acronyms. It's cost of goods sold. So every you know business uh, owner that makes a product should know, you know the cost of, of what goes into making one of their products. And then, of course, you, know, you want to price it enough so that you're netting a profit off of that. So what, when someone came to your booth and said, what is this? What did you say? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question because my deodorant, it didn't look like most, right? It was packaged in a glass jar. So that, oh. you know, question was certainly when I got with pretty much everybody who walked up to the booth, like, what is this? Is this a lotion? Am I supposed to eat it? What am I, what am I looking at here? And so I just started talking, what type of deodorant do you use? And this is a new natural one. You got to try it. It actually works. And this was back in 
2010. And so the natural deodorants on the market just had a reputation for being ineffective. Mm-hmm. So that was really a big opportunity for me to, to switch that up and also to create one that, you know, looked good and smelled different from what was on the market. It was just, everything was so boring and cliche and, you know, deodorant's not the sexiest product, but I thought there was a, an opportunity to make it more interesting. Yeah. When did you make like a label? Right before I went to market, I was like, oh, I need a label. And I, I had, my friend was over and he's a, he's a designer. And we thought it would be fun to just sketch an illustration of me wearing like this old timey bonnet. And then I was packaging my deodorant in these mason jars. So it just totally worked. I bought this bonnet off of Amazon for like $2. And then he came over, took a photo and like and ended up sketching me. It was just so funny, but it, it worked. This was like, again, you know, 2010 sort of cottage industry aesthetic mm-hmm. was, was trending and people thought it was interesting. And, and then a couple of years in, I thought, well, to, to land more retail accounts, you know, I think I need to tighten this up a little bit and make it a little more professional. <laughs> yeah. How do you land these, these retail accounts? It's funny because it's, it's not hard, but it's, there's also, you know, an art to it. You know, if you're lucky, retailers will start hearing about you and they'll, they'll come to you and say, Hey, I'm interested in your product. And that happened to me a lot, surprisingly. And so that, that made things a little easier, but for some of my dream retailers, you know, I, I definitely had to work for it. I started with literally just stopping by some of these stores and dropping off samples and saying, this is my product. Here's why it's a good fit for your store. You know, getting somebody to pay attention to is not always that easy, but persistence mm-hmm. paid off. And then just, you know, as you become more well-known in the industry, things get a little easier. And as you have success in one retailer, then you can take, you know, those numbers and then show it to another retailer and say, hey, look, we're the number one selling deodorant in this store. Why don't you carry it in yours? And so every retailer is different and actually every buyer is different too. And there's a lot of turnover in the industry between buyers. So if you get a no from somebody, right, you wait six months, they are in a new position, you go and try again with the next buyer. That's interesting. And so it's like a lot of legwork. Yeah, it is. It's, I, I'm, I think persistence is literally just the, the most important piece of, of getting into stores and there's so much competition. And if a retailer ignores you or says no, and it, it's not something to take personally, it's just, there's so many products that they see. And one time I went into one of the local co-ops and they took me in the back room and showed me like the supply of, of samples they'd received in the last month. And it was insane. And I thought, well, how can I ever make it when there's this many brands that are right. sending in their products? And that gave me some perspective, but it also pushed me to work a lot harder. Right. And, and I think the key was, you know, of course, showing how your product is different, right. They don't want to just bring on something that they already have in their shelves, but also like how your product can, fit into this category and add value to the entire assortment. So like I could go in there and say, Hey, my deodorant is way better than XYZ brand, but that doesn't help them because they're still carrying those brands. They want to know how you can bring value to the category as a whole. It took me some time to figure that out. But if you think about it from the buyer's perspective, it totally makes sense. When did you start having it made somewhere other than your kitchen? I pushed that out as long as I could. You know, my first couple employees worked in my garage and, but then I got to a point and I thought, well, it's, you know, time to level up and, I, I found a place in my neighborhood right around the corner that was this old warehouse. It was the perfect fit for me. And that was that was probably about three years into the business. So I took the first couple of years pretty slowly, signed that lease, and then everything sort of took off from there. And people were like making the product in the warehouse. It's crazy because when I look back, I, I literally built out a factory, like with no know-how or experience. Because it started, you know, small, and then I moved about four different times to different spaces, and then eventually had you know thirty thousand square feet, two shifts of factory employees on these assembly lines making deodorant. It was just so wild to think about how I just sort of learned as I went. It's all about like making small upgrades, but a lot of that was also because I was bootstrapping 
I didn't have a big infusion of capital to invest in a factory, um, you know, but if people who raise money might, might have that ability to really level up right away. But for me, it was like one step at a time. Yeah, I was going to say, so you didn't have investments till when? I, I brought on a business partner in year five, which... Um, oh, wow. I was... Eh, yeah, I was in... <laughs> that's, a whole, <laughs> that's a whole episode in itself. I was promised some, you know, relationships that would be advantageous to the business and, and some support that ended up, you know, it, it was beneficial overall, I guess, looking back, but there were a lot of hurdles that I had to overcome to, to make it work. But anyway, aside from that, like there was no outside partners. I did not take on funding. And I was you know, at a point in year seven where all my money was tied up on shelves at like Target, Costco, Walmart. And it was like, all right, it's time to either start, you know, thinking about how we're going to raise capital or find a strategic partner. And that's when Unilever came into the picture. Oh, so, okay. So you are selling this stuff. How do you get like repeat clients? At the markets, face-to-face with customers, that was like the most beautiful time of the business, I think, because I was there getting, you know, in the moment feedback. It was basically having focus groups right in front of me for free. And customers love to to help, right? They want to feel like they're part of building the brand and it's fun for them. And so, yeah. And so I, you know, maintained a lot of those relationships from week to week and over the years. And as the business changes, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to maintain some of those relationships, but there was a lot of loyalty because with a product like deodorant, you know, it it has to work. And if, when you find something that works, then people want to stick with it. Mm -hmm. But then the trick is like, how do you keep it interesting, right? Like people might get, get tired of the scents and want to try something else. And so we are constantly, spinning off like limited edition fragrances and things like that. If someone's like just starting, how do, how do you do that? I had an email sign up list every time I did one of these shows and, and that was helpful. And then in those emails, I would refer people like to the Facebook page, for example, mm-hmm. and Facebook was just starting to get you know popular back then. So people were excited to, <laughs> to follow along and, and that was a great way to keep people engaged. And I would, you know, post recipes like DIY recipes in there that people enjoyed and just talk about like the different shows that I would be at or the different retailers that I got into. So definitely like that regular communication with customers was important in those earliest days. And you made it personal. Like you were like, hi, this Mm -hmm. is me, Jamie, doing this. Yeah, it was all like, I was literally the only employee in like the first two years. And so it was just, here I am, you know, this one woman show. (laughs) And then, you know, that, that message continued as we grew and but we became, you know, more of a team and more of a brand and less about like, you know, Jamie is the woman behind the brand. But But I always stayed close to the customer. And, you know, even as when we were a huge company and we were still putting out surveys on social media, asking for customers' opinions on things like new fragrances. And so that's just so key for any businesses. It sounds cliche, right? Like, of course, the customer's your number one priority, but it's challenging. And you always have to remind yourself, like, that is the number one priority every day when you come into work. Were there any like mistakes that you made getting customers to stick around long term or keeping clients? You know, one thing I I think I probably could have done a little differently. I, I took customer feedback so seriously and so much to heart, right? Like I wanted every single person to be happy. And I think that's typical of any founder. But it, that becomes really tiring and almost impossible as the company scales, right? You have to learn, you know, when to let go, start looking for for patterns, right? And if you start hearing certain feedback over and over, like those are the things you pay attention to and you execute on. And little spin-off things, you know, you can acknowledge and thank people for, but you can't always keep everybody happy and mm-hmm. give them what they need. But I was doing things like cleaning people's shirts that like complained of deodorant stains. <laughs> so why? I know. So every every week I was you know, scrubbing people's shirts and then 
realize, you know, we could just be more proactive in, with our education, right? Like, let's tell people how much they need to use. Let's, let's, you know, give people advice that maybe they should wait before, you know, putting their shirt on or whatever it might be. And, and some people's body chemistry just, you know, might not be the, the right fit. And so it's just being willing you know, to let go. Yeah. Like if a client's mad at you, how do you handle that? Yeah, you, you know, you try your best. You apologize if there's an apology that needs to be said, right? Like not every situation demands that you say you're sorry. Right. Um, but if you, you know, legit screwed up or made somebody's life uncomfortable, then yeah, you own up and, and, and you apologize. And then just there's ways you can try to fix it. Maybe a refund always. We were really generous in our um, exchanges and our mm-hmm. refunds and just, you know, without asking questions. And maybe it's a, it's a coupon or a discount code or getting mm-hmm. creative and, and sort of looking to them to tell you what they need to be happy. Yeah, which it's not going to happen for everyone. <laughs> a lot of people are freelancers in terms of like starting a small business or like, hey, mm-hmm. I'm doing graphic design. Like, how do you stand out? How do you, when you went in and you saw all of those deodorants, like how do you not just go, uh, well, good day, I quit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think for me, it was just not obsessing too much over the competition, right? And just really looking back to like my inspiration for starting the business, what I thought was important and what and interesting and what I thought the industry needed and less about like obsessing every day about what everybody else is doing. Because then you lose you lose sight of like what you think is important and how you want your business to run and what makes your product unique. And so it's hard because there's you need a balance of like knowing what you're up against and knowing what's happening in the industry, but at the same time, not completely immersing yourself so that you you know lose sight of like your own goals. Yeah. Were you studying other deodorants? Were you studying like, okay, so this company's putting out a lotion now. Should we put out a lotion? You know, there was a point where I was really obsessed, like over the top, like spending every night, you know, online, just looking at what people are up to. And so, you know, again, reminding myself like, hey, we need some boundaries here. But, you know, then as a business got a little more mature, it was things like paying attention to trends, right? Like reading industry reports and understanding what were the up and coming trends, what was selling well. And so, you know, rather than digging deep into like, you know, what so-and-so founder was doing, it's more like, what does the industry need and what are customers looking for? Mm-hmm. And what are they not getting somewhere else? Right. Okay. So you were talking about Facebook a little bit, like mm-hmm. how important is, is social media overall? It was always important for us. I think even more so today, that's just the way to reach people and, you know, not just for a brand, but on a personal level too, right? Like as we want to build on our own brands and staying relevant and just making sure you're tapping into different channels. I think, I think it's huge. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she still listens to this or not. There was a, a teenager that I met years ago who was a photographer and I was interviewing a bunch of teenagers for my book. And at the end of the interview, she handed me her Instagram handle and was like, follow me. I'm a photographer. And I nice. was like, okay. Like, and I feel like that, and, and it was, I was talking to these, these teenagers at the time, it was like 2017, 2018, and they were saying like, oh, you know, less so going to college and more so like, I want to be a hairstylist, so I got to build out, you know, my brand as a hairstylist, or like, I want to, you know, be a photographer, so I have to like, build out my brand as a photographer. What are some like, little known resources if people are, okay, I'm, you know, I'm doing this, or even like, similar to you, right? I'm making my own brand of coffee in mm-hmm. my kitchen. Like what are the resources? Honestly, less about resources and more about like mindset. As founders and entrepreneurs, we we doubt ourselves. We, you know, there's the whole imposter syndrome thing and just like, I don't know, feeling maybe unworthy. And it's like the the mind trick is just to like 
always remind yourself like if, like you are the most qualified person to be building your business right mm-hmm. like not nobody can compete with that and so for me like that was always important it was just I didn't read a lot of you know playbooks on how to be the best entrepreneur I was more like you know <laughs> mind control and think and just like 100% believing in yourself and you realize as you go that like everybody's sort of just winging it right like no one's born to be you know, the most successful entrepreneur. It's like, it's all about like, you know, your motivation and your, your passion for it. And just, I, I a hundred percent believe that like everybody is equally equipped to, to make something for themselves if that's what they want to do. I mean, how do you get over like sort of being like, where I, I didn't go to business school. Why am I qualified? I think sometimes it's like a little bit of humor, right? Like laughing, like what, like, who do I think I am doing this? But Hey, this is awesome. I'm gonna keep going. I remember like, being in my kitchen and creating my deodorant on my stovetop with these just really basic pots and pans and spatulas. And then thinking about my competition, right? Like the big deodorant brand names, like Axe, Dove, Secret, and thinking, oh my gosh, they're over here with these like sophisticated labs and all these chemists. And here I am in my little kitchen. And I'm like, you know what? But it's working because I am selling as much deodorant as they are. You know, like the numbers tell the truth. And what your customers are saying is like the most powerful validation of what you're doing. How do you know when to sell? Like, how did you know when to go with Unilever? It was not something I had planned for. I never was thinking, you know, how do I, uh, what is my big exit plan here, right? Because I just loved what I was doing so much. And I didn't, I really couldn't see myself doing anything different. It was just, it was just a part of me. But then when we were in a position where we were strapped for cash, started thinking about the potential to partner with somebody who could really help take the business to the next level. And I realized, you know, I'd given so much of myself and, and sort of got into the business to the point where it could it could run without me, right? So maybe it made sense for somebody else with a lot of experience and, and, and expertise and, and resources to, to help make it the most successful and reach as many people as it could. And then I recognized too that, you know, there was a lot more I could do in my life that I, you know, gained so many insights and so much experience that I was excited to help other entrepreneurs and, and sort of plug into the ecosystem in a new way. You do other products. Like mm-hmm. when were you like, okay, we can do other products? Yeah, when we started hearing from customers over and over asking for new things, we realized, all right, there's, you know, there's potential here. People want it, but I didn't want to do it too soon. Yeah. I, I really believe that to be a successful business, you had to do one thing and do it really well. And so that was the case with the deodorant, right? Like we were known for having a really good deodorant. And so I thought if I create something else, it has to live up to those same expectations. It has to be, you know, just as impactful and, and life-changing, you know, mm-hmm. as this other product I had made. And so we are excited to, to give customers what they wanted and realize there was, you know, potential to continue to grow the brand by expanding. Did you go to business school? I actually did, but I had zero idea that I would ever become an entrepreneur. <laughs> I chose it because I didn't know what else to do. There was, you know, nothing in my life that was pulling me to, to explore. And I just was sort of lost for most of my early adulthood. I didn't feel strongly about any career path. I was constantly confused about what I wanted to do. And then I really started exploring the creative side of me. And then that's what led to, to starting Schmitz. And so looking back at the business school days, I thought, oh, this is funny that I'm actually tapping back into this. And I think, you know, I've learned some things in school, but I, nothing compares to like just the experience of doing it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. And what other things were you doing while you were, were you doing others? You said you were doing other jobs. Were you doing stuff to like supplement Schmitz at the beginning? Yeah. In the earliest days of the business, I, I had a couple of side jobs where I was working at some local retailers and sort of trying to learn the industry, right? And to oh. see people interacting with my product on shelves and also worked for an e-com retailer building these DIY kits and sort of exploring that space a little more on, 
like uh, DIY lotions and shampoos and things and, and selling those. And um, yeah, I wasn't ready to 100% give up work. You know, I, I couldn't afford it. I also thought it was an interesting opportunity to just sort of dive into some of these industries that were relevant to what I was building. That's so, and then were you like expecting maybe like one day I'll quit and just do Schmitz? Yeah, I, I didn't have a big plan of like, okay, you know, yeah, year one, this is my goal, year five, here's where I want to be. It was more just taking it a day at a time. And then I realized, you know, so much of my energy was needed to be on the business. And mm-hmm. so it started, I started to slowly, you know, uh, wean off <laughs> the other yeah. jobs. How did you know, like, how to do the chemistry part? Yeah, that was just trial and error. And just, you know, I love ingredients. I love fragrances. And so it was just fun for me to, to just try combining things and see what worked. I just picture you, like, lifting the lid and being like, this is entirely too much vanilla. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's 100% what I did. I would, you know, sit, sit there with the essential oil dropper and I'd count, you know, one, two, three, four drops, or whatever, and then take a note and, you know, tweak things and just, and it was all like, my personal preferences back then, because I didn't have the money to invest in, you know, real focus groups. I had, you know, of course my in-person people, which was super helpful, but I didn't have these big sophisticated, you know, groups of people telling me what, what worked. And so relying on what I thought made sense. When I like had my book coming out, I send Mm -hmm. like these long emails to everyone I know, which is, I acknowledge in the email, this is annoying. And I am like, can you please post about my book? Were you doing stuff like that? I like that boldness. I think like if, looking back, like if I was to start a business today, I think I would. Yeah. But I was more like, yeah, I love that you did that. Because I think back then I was more like, just like didn't feel like I deserved. I don't know. It was, it's hard to, to articulate. But also like, you know, this was 2010 when I started, right. right? And so now it's like just so different. Like people are building in public now. They're leaning on their communities to really help get the word out and stuff. And so I think if I started now, it would look different. Was there like a thing of somebody big posts about Schmitz or something, you know, and like, or was it like, hey, when you come to my booth, can you tell like two other people about me? Like, how do you, you know, it just seems so, so intimidating. There was a lot of, I guess, small scale influencers. YouTube was like really, um, you know, sort of big in that natural product space back then. There's a lot of beauty reviewers, right? And so we were, we'd start to like send out samples to people that we had learned of and did a little research on and, and they loved getting free stuff. And if it worked for them, you know, they were happy to talk about it. And so, and it was working for a lot of people. And so then they were just promoting it for free and then the word started to spread. And that was really powerful for us. So I think, you know, you have to have a willingness to give out samples, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, as entrepreneurs, we were pinching every penny and we don't want to give away free product, but it pays off, you know, you know, in a huge way if the right person likes your product. Yeah, that's true. You know, my sister builds websites, right? So she'll say to me, can I build your website? And then can you ask your friend if I can build their website? And, you know, it kind of goes from there. But I think maybe sometimes people expect it to be overnight. Right. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> It's not overnight. <laughs> yeah, you have to build a reputation, which is yeah. why you were cleaning people's shirts because you're like, right. you want people to, to be like, wow, this is really above and beyond, which is, you know, yeah. wild to do. And so many entrepreneurs today are just expecting those immediate results and just really hustling to like, mm-hmm. you know, make it to this finish line, you know, whatever that looks like for them. And I think that's what was so helpful for me that I didn't have like a, a finish line in mind. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a certain goal for myself or the business. It was more just like, you know, this is fun. I'm enjoying it. People need this. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. I wish that mm-hmm. there was more 
social services in place or like ways that I sometimes think about the the businesses that aren't happening because people don't have starter money or people don't have the yeah. time or is there anything that you think like people who are just starting is there some kind is there like a f- scholarship or a fund or something there's a lot of there's a lot more crowdfunding happening mm-hmm. which is really interesting and i think it's good for certain businesses who just want you know infusion of money from a lot of different people just a small amount and you get these early ambassadors for your brand on board and a lot more opportunity there mm-hmm. and that's just going to continue to grow and I think just the power of networking and social media now is just so extreme too that people need to, if you're thinking of starting a business or building a community, just jump on platforms like Twitter and just really put yourself out there, engage with people, make connections, just get in there and just own it. It's interesting. Like I I think there's a level to freelancing or putting yourself out there starting a business. You have to like not be ashamed or you can be ashamed, but you have to kind of push through it. Like I talk about this in the beginning, but a lot of times when I was starting to to put stuff online, you know, there were people in my life who were like, this is embarrassing. (laughs) Or like thinking like, this is wild that you feel like you're not gonna fail or something. I relate to that so much because that's that's who they knew. They knew you as somebody else, right? And then you're putting yourself out there as an entrepreneur and they're just like, I don't know if I associate Mm -hmm. this, you know, this sort of image or lifestyle with this person that I've known for so long. And so that's where it gets hard on some of these relationships because your biggest skeptics sometimes are your friends and family and the people that are closest to you. And they can't, they just don't see you that way. Or maybe they're intimidated by it or they're like worried that, you know, hey, if she's successful here, what does that mean for our relationship and how she views me? And Mm -hmm. that whole thing is, is complicated and and sad and, and complex. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. and it's like can be embarrassing. And I think something that you have to like and that we don't talk about a lot as as, you know, whatever influencers is like people, mm-hmm. you know, are going to be like, this is the like, Gabby's posting a lot about their podcast. Like this is like embarrassing, you know, and you just have to like know that that's happening and be like, that's not for you. And I don't care. And so it's like, you know, like a certain, I'm sure, and I don't want to like make you paranoid, but I'm sure people were like, Jamie's posting about the deodorant again. You know what I mean? Yeah. I had a family member I noticed like had unfollowed me on Instagram and I like kind of like jokingly called her out about it (laughs) because I noticed. Yeah. And she like was just like, you know, I was just kind of sick of seeing all the business content. I'm like, that's fair, but come on. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's going to happen and like, it's going to be embarrassing. And you just like, I don't know what part of my brain is broken that I'm like, just push past it. It's hard, but the biggest, the people who like really believe in you and, you know, want the best for you will be there no matter what. Where can people find you and more about you? So Twitter and Instagram mostly. It's Jamie Schmidt, J-A-I-M-E, Schmidt. (laughs) And what's the website for the deodorant? Schmitz.com. And we have socials too. It's just under Schmitz Naturals, easy to find. Our next guest is Haley Melodic, who spoke about the industry standards that need to change and how you can protect yourself and organize with others. My name is Haley Melodic. I am a freelance writer currently working on my first book. I'm a contract editor for Essence, a fashion magazine based in Montreal, and I am an organizer with the National Writers Union and the Freelance Solidarity Project. So what is the Freelance Solidarity Project? It is a distinct division of digital media workers who are freelancers in different mediums throughout the industry that have come together to advocate for first setting standards and then working together to raise them. 
you know, we're part of the National Writers Union, which has an incredible history and tradition of advocating for the rights of writers. We are open to any type of digital media workers. So we have writers, editors, people who work in social media, copy editors and fat checkers, graphic designers, podcasters, video. And the reason that we wanted to do that is because we feel it's the best reflection for how the industry actually works today. So many of us experience moving back and forth between different mediums, whether in our jobs or our, you know, our personal preferences for what sort of contributions we make to digital media. And then we also talk a lot about how important it is to advocate for better standards across the industry, whether you are currently staff or currently freelance, because so many of us move mm-hmm. between those states um, at so many different points in our career, as you were just yep. saying. And it really was inspired quite a bit by all of the organizing that was happening with staff workers in media, because we felt like there was maybe an implicit play on the part of management to pit freelancers against staff workers. Mm-hmm. And when we're all protecting our own labor, we're all better taken care of. How were like staffers and freelancers being pitted against each other? You know, it is one of those things like you can really feel it in the atmosphere, but then I'm always hesitant to point to any real examples. And I try not to make too many generalizations as an organizer, but one thing I'll generalize about that I feel confident in is that it is never just one person. If one person is experiencing a bad working environment, it is part of a pattern or a culture at that workplace. And so I would say, you know, there are like the ordinary kind of everyday things where sometimes it can be hard for freelancers to feel like their labor is being respected, that their time is valued the same way a staff worker who has a salary maybe has their time respected. And the same way it can be hard sometimes for staff workers to properly communicate to freelancers the demands on their time or their attention. Why is it so hard to get paid? (laughs) Why is it so hard to get paid on time, to get anyone to pay you. (laughs) Listen, like, if I knew, no, okay, I do think there is an answer to this question. And it's one of those things where there are practical answers, and then there are very philosophical answers, you know, like, on the one hand, there's a lot of issues with infrastructure, right? Either because it's like too slow, and it's calcified, or it's too fast, and things fall between the cracks. So I think it's like, often it's a lot of human error, right? And so as a freelancer and a person and a comedian who's always trying to be nice, I can be very understanding when it is just like a mistake. You know, everybody's trying their best. It's so important Mm. to enter into these conversations in good faith when you are like, hey, where's my money? But at the same time, as an organizer, I feel like I have to hold on to my sense of like self-righteous rage Because of course, it's, you know, it's our labor, you know, as Mm -hmm. a person, as somebody who is like a member of a community, when we're providing our labor, it's really, really diminishing and disrespectful to feel like you have to beg just to get paid on time. And Mm -hmm. so in those cases, I found that our organizing practices have been really useful in maybe making up the gaps in the infrastructure and the places where human error to be like, you know what, things happen, mistakes are made. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why. What matters is how we're going to correct it. So that's things like relying on Mm -hmm. the New York City Freelance Isn't Free Act, which is a bill that the city has to ensure that all freelance workers are paid within 30 days. Oftentimes, just reminding a publication that that exists is enough. 
if that fails to actually get them to pay you on time, then there is like, you know, there's um, a grievance procedure that we have at the National Writers Union that will take on for freelancers. Um, and we've done wow. group grievances as well, because like I said, it's almost never just one person who's not being paid on time, if that's the pattern at a publication. So there's been a huge amount of money recouped when people come together collectively. So when you're talking about these laws, right? A lot of times for me, I'll go through the contract and I'll be like, this is not legal what you're doing. Here's this. But if you bring that to a publication, are they going to be like mad at you and not work with you again? (laughs) But then also to me, I'm like, I should be mad at you. (laughs) No, absolutely. Like, and it really does go both ways. But Mm -hmm. of course, I feel very, very sensitive to the power dynamic at play there. I hate it. It's the worst. Like you're just always at a disadvantage when you're the freelancer. Obviously, like I'm so biased, but that is why I feel like it's very important to join unions like the National Writers Union or other organizations that mm-hmm. fight for the rights of the workers in whatever industry you're in, because you you are more mm-hmm. powerful as a group. Like labor organizing mm-hmm. and unions are just one tactic that's available to us that's proven very effective. Um, and so just even like mm-hmm. having the National Writers Union almost as a way to depersonalize the process, you know, because of course, I'm also sometimes afraid. I'm, I don't want an editor to be mad at me because mm-hmm. I'm like calling them out for doing something weird. But it's sort of it creates this like neutral third party where it's just like, you know, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about holding my work and the work that I do in this industry to a certain standard that's already been set, you know, and like, now we have this entity that can work that out between us, so that we can focus on the writing, because I'm a writer, right? That's like my personal work experience. But yeah, one of the best pieces of advice I got from an organizer a long time ago, is that laws don't enforce themselves. And contracts definitely fall under that. It always has to be a person who's out there enforcing it. So a lot of companies will try to get away with things that like, nobody's unaware of what the laws actually are. So can we talk a little bit about the health insurance of it all? Is that part of what you guys are working on or help organize around? Yes, that's absolutely like a huge part of our organizing strategy. But something I really had to get comfortable saying all the time is that just because something is normal, doesn't mean it's okay. Yes. And I will share something I think about often is when we were early in the stages of organizing. And we had this like really good conversation um, where one of the organizers brought up whether or not it was we wanted to make freelancing better or we wanted to end freelancing. Oh, because a lot of people like automatically, you know, it was like a light bulb went off in the room. People are like, you know, if we had rent control and universal health care, we would choose freelancing. Like we would prefer to have the freedom to work with different publications, different editors. It is the material right. conditions of the state of the work that make us want to do something else, not the work itself. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, those are our central values that we're not just fighting to, you know, make the experience of writing an essay better, but that we are trying to join in this fight for a better quality of life. Mm. And so, yeah, so like the National Writers Union and a lot of other open shop unions, because like we're an open shop union, which means that anybody who pays dues can join. So like uh, we do, like many other open shop unions, we have deals where you can sign up to be part of a group benefits package or things like that, where it is quite similar to, you know, being a freelancer and looking mm. for your own uh, healthcare package, but there are certain perks to having um, a union affiliation when you're doing that. Where can people follow you and find out more about you and then also the, the Freelance Solidarity Project? 
Yes, we have a wonderful website for the Freelance Solidarity Project. Um, I believe it's just freelancesolidarityproject.org. And then there's the National Writers Union website as well. My work can be found on my website, which is just haleymelodic.com. And hopefully, you know, in a good magazine near you sometime soon. This episode was so informative to me. Both interviews were just really, really good and I learned so much, which is hard to believe because I've been freelance for like most of the last decade. One topic that both interviews made me reflect on is shame. It came up in both, right? The shame of putting yourself out there, the shame of admitting you need help being treated fairly at work, the shame of confronting your clients or employers through unionizing if they don't want you to unionize, the shame of believing in yourself and your business, and the shame of like telling people that. I would say most of my work requires ignoring the feelings of shame and imposter syndrome, like pushing through that to believe in my business, which is myself, and to believe that I'm worth it. And to know that my worth is enough to join up with a place like the Freelance Solidarity Project because things can always be better for everyone. Done. 